text, when I was reading that in my morning time, and I saw, okay, the guy finds a treasure in a field, and then he goes and he sells everything he has. And the first thought that struck me is going, okay, now, if I found a treasure in a field, okay, I'd go buy it, but why, why wasn't it entertained to buy it for a good deal? Like, why did he have to go all out? Or at least offer a fantastic deal. But why everything? He still would have got the treasure. And I think that was the whole point. The extremeness of what Jesus was trying to get across to us. The kingdom of God, life in Christ, relationship with our Creator, our spirituality— has no comparison, there's nothing competing with it compared to what it offers. And I was reminded as I read that this morning that, you know what, there's a lot of extreme language in Scripture. You look at innuendos, you look at the stories, you look at allegories, you look at some very direct, in-your-face, consequential actions that they speak of. And sometimes it leaves us a little uncomfortable. And I know while we live in a very temperate society, especially as Canadians, sometimes we have this habit of maybe skimming over some of those harsher statements that we find in the Bible because we don't know really how to handle them. And yet there they are. Fanaticism is often described as a belief or behavior involving uncritical zeal. Or like this, or obsessive enthusiasm. Obsessive enthusiasm. And I was reminded of a few people I know that love their sports obsessively. They know not, they don't only know their own team players and all the stats, they know every team players and all the stats. And I'm thinking, why are you wasting so much of your brain real estate for that kind of stuff? But they do. They're obsessed with it. Fanatical itself begins with the word fan. You know, I was at a Bombers game a few weeks back when I was in Winnipeg. Saw some guys I haven't seen since I graduated high school. And they were at the game, so I went to see them. And we're all chatting away, and there's opening ceremonies. And I guess part of the opening ceremonies is they have these fans, probably season ticket holders, start running out the tunnel to the field. And I'm watching, and this... Guy that I noticed right off the bat. Why? Because he's right out front. He's pumping, he's fist pumps, he's jumping in the air, and he's flailing his arms, and he's going. And I'm looking at him, and I'm going, okay, one, nobody's really watching. (laughs) And going, it's just a game, and you're not even a player. And there he was. And I know, again, as Canadians, typically... But even overall, fanatics in any arena of life, whether it's, you know, environmental issues, political issues, social issues, they have a way of sometimes stirring up some emotions within us. Isn't it strange that now when I see a vehicle filled with Canadian flags, I get a completely different feeling than I did, you know, say a couple years ago? Why is that? Rainbow used to be a rainbow, not anymore. It used to be the promise of God. It stirs different feelings now. The woke culture continues to demonstrate this fractured ideology of so many people with all of their extremes. And we have this pendulum that continues to swing from one extreme to another. 
So we create these camps that help us kind of identify, well, this is where I stand and this is where I stand. And we throw words out like, well, you need to be informed and you need to be educated and you need to have, you know, be conscious of all the injustices that are out there. And then we have conspiracy theorists that they say, open your eyes, you're being deluded, you're being taken for all you got. Fanaticism. Sexual identity has fallen into this camp. And I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of where we stand in those type of things, but we look at this and we go, that's obsessive behavior. That's getting carried away. And then God said, but hold it. That's what I expect from you. The Scriptures teach obsessive behavior. There is a conspiracy theory going on. There is an enemy that we are battling. And, I'm, and God was kind of gently just saying, you know, there's a reason that in Hebrews 2.1, the author says, you know what, guys, this, it reads this. We must be very careful and pay the most careful attention, therefore, it says, to what we have heard. Why? So that we do not drift away. So that we don't drift away. The context of that statement was surrounding salvation. The introduction of the kingdom of God, the greatest treasure that Jesus alluded to that we could ever possess in this existence of ours. Something that you should give all that you have to make sure you own it. And we know the implications are obvious. That sometimes the author says we have it, we understood it, but we're drifting. And we need to rediscover a treasure. What was the definition? Something that was considered forgotten or lost until rediscovered. And so as you read scriptures, there is so much in there that kind of gets in your face. How careful should we be with regards to all these things that we pursue? The Bible says, well, you know, there's idols. The golden cow, but we know it's not just statues. Golden coins work just as well. All the way to golden retirement. Everything we pursue that we think is ours, that we earn and deserve the right to possess and to have, can we know become an idol. And so we hear some difficult words. Words like Jesus in Revelations that said in 3.16, so because you are neither hot nor cold, <laughs> you're lukewarm, Here's some, you know, tough language. I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's pretty descriptive. And then I'm often thought of what I have typically when I <clears throat> debate people, whether it's faith or nutrition or politics. I always, almost always hear the following statement. Well, within moderation. Within moderation. And I looked at that, and I got at that with my son just the other day. And I says, you know, that's, that's typically a cop-out. Okay, that's, that to me is a lukewarm response that basically is revealing a deep-seated belief that inside I'm not really holding to any absolute truth with regards to something. You know, there's always two sides to the story, we say. You can be right, I can be right. Why can't we all be right? Well, because Jesus said something like, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad that leads to destruction. Want to get elitist? Jesus in 14.6 of John said, 
Let's boil this right down to the key fact. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. That's inclusive. That's extreme. That's confrontational. And that's what Jesus was getting at, coming back to our parable with the kingdom of God being discovered. It is, Glenn, of extreme importance, so much so that whatever you possess is worth exchanging for that opportunity. All in. Go for broke. I remember I was going to send, Matt asked me to send the title, and I said going for broke, and then I had this, you know, oh, that's kind of a gambling terminology. Likewise, all in, in the poker hand. I'm going, eh, someone might be offended. And then I'm going, no, 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 no. That's what he's saying right here. It is worth the risk to throw everything on the table for this. Buy the field. Just buy it. It's the reason why other references in Scripture, again, sometimes give us a little discomfort. You know, I'm, I could spend hours bringing them up, but I'm reminded of Matthew 10, 32. Jesus, well, he couldn't have been more in your face, okay, when he's speaking here. He says, here's the deal. You acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you before my Father. You disown me, I'll disown you before my father. Oh, then he says, do you think that I came to bring peace on this earth? I brought a sword. Oh, by the way, I've come, it says in this text, to turn man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law. That might come naturally, but a man's enemies, he says, will be members of his own household, Oh, by the way, anyone who loves their father or mother than me is not worthy of me. Oh, if you love your children more than me, not worthy of me. Oh, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, not worthy of me. Oh, whoever finds their life, you think you found it, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, now you found it. That's in your face. And I know it's really easy for me to sometimes skim over these and say, well, there's some contextual things, there's some linguistic language things that you need to understand, and we try to kind of justify it some. No, whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's what I want us to understand. So the Bible's extreme. It calls for obsessive behavior. And in the time we have left, I'm going to simply bring three. I'm just going to whet your appetite with some verses and three extremes that I just, there's so many that I just found. Why this is so important to God. Number one, God's extremely envious. Period. God is an envious God. Exodus 34, 14. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. <laughs> I love that. Whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 32, 21. We hear directly from God. He's angry at people and says, They made me jealous, God said, by what is no God, and angered me with their worthless idols. That got him going. It's the same intent in the New Testament found in 1 John 2, 15, where it writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Because if anyone loves the world... 
then the Father's love's not in them. And I'm going, that's harsh. It's the classic, leads into the what? Another Matthew text, 624. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one or hate the other. You can't serve money and God. We know that. We've heard that. But then you even get more extreme, <laughs> where Jesus says things like this. Oh, by the way, in this process of trying to discover the treasure and gave all that you have for it, if there's any issues, and let's say your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to cut it off, it's better for you to go with one eye to heaven versus the alternative. If that's not extreme, I don't know what is. I'm getting the drift. Right from the very beginning, that first idol, Adam and Eve, were introduced. This innate rebellious spirit comes in within us that we desire something that's not God. And that becomes a problem. And that's why the scriptures are full of, if you keep my commands with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. See, he doesn't leave a lot of room for 80, 60, 70 percent. Mark eleven twenty two. Or another really, sh- not a short verse, not as short as Jesus wept, but it's a short one. Jesus answered, have faith in God. That's what he told his son. Just have faith in God. Why? Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible. Impossible to please God. He's a jealous God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. James reiterates through his entire book, we know that, don't merely listen. Don't just listen to the word. And then what does it say? So deceive yourself. Don't listen and deceive yourself. Do. Do, do, do what it says. There's always something followed in a belief system that proves where your heart's at. And I know how easy it is to drift, how easy it is to become sidetracked, how easy it is to be consumed by the pursuit of things and opportunities and entertainment and education and promotion and spouses and kids and that golden retirement. But what's at stake? Everything. Eternity. And the society around us will say, well, don't don't get carried away. That's being, even people in the church, you're getting a little fanatical. Quit with the flailing of the hands. A little less fist pumping, please. And I sat there and going, I can't stand in good conscience before God and Scripture and somehow water this down. <laughs> it doesn't allow me to. And this says, Glenn, your health, your family, your possessions, your comfort, your pride, Everything is worth tossing for the treasure of the kingdom of God. I can lose it, not only that, with joy, the verse says. And that's why guys like, you know, James will say, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Even pain and suffering falls into that camp. See, that leads us to a second one, extreme expectations. We sing, I surrender all, and yet we don't. And the real question we need to be asking ourselves every day is, do you want Jesus more than anything else? Period. Paul said in Hebrews 12:1, or the author, let us throw off everything that hinders. Everything. 
and sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us. Yes, run with again, arms failing and fist pumping. Just run. That's why John records Jesus saying, if you hold to my teachings, you really are my disciples. Then you get it. And then it says, and you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. And not just free, the extreme expectations. See, we often think of extreme expectations. Oh, no, the hard stuff, the cross-bearing stuff. God's saying, no, extreme expectations here is that you can live and exist in a world filled with pain and suffering and issues and turmoil and all these things and still maintain a sense of peace and joy and love and presence of God and power and strength to walk. That's extreme. And that's what we can expect from God. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we even ask or imagine, according to his power that is supposed to be at work within us. And I'm looking at it again. If you've tasted that, you know what I'm saying. It's like King David. He's, he tasted it. Now he messed up incredibly. In fact, this just brings me, I hate to say this, but such joy that others are like that, and yet he can be seen as a man after the heart of God. And so he'll say in Psalm 39, Lord, search me. Take a good look. Know my heart. Test me. Well, you know my anxious thoughts, why they're always there. See if there is just anything offensive in me. And disrupting the way of the everlasting. And so he's basically saying, whatever it takes, whatever truth you need to hear, whatever steps you need to take, I don't want anything coming my way that's not of God. If that means changing careers, if that means shutting off the TV for long periods of time or social media or canceling trips that you can't afford, but you're putting yourself into further debt, that's become your idol. If it means going to a brother or a sister, confessing sin, dealing with addiction, it, it, whatever it is, selling all that you have, as Jesus told the one rich young ruler, <laughs> sell it all, follow me, because he knew that was his idol. The bar's been raised. We kid ourselves if we keep doing church and think that there isn't these high expectations, but also expectations of God taking us through it. You know, I was in a heated dis- debate. You might say, hey, he argues a lot. I like to debate. And I'm in this discussion with this individual who said they couldn't in their possible mind deem any room for them to forgive someone for what they did. They knew some of my history. And they actually brought some of that up and they said you're telling me Glenn that what happened to you and your kids the atrocities that happened to you're going to forgive those individuals and I said yes I have to I have to I told them why because there's some pretty extreme language in the scriptures that tell me otherwise and so I will say Matthew 6:15 if you do not forgive others then how can God forgive you we mock God and what he did God went all in all out to face torture and death and humiliation for me And I'm going to turn around and say, well, I'm not willing to go that far for someone else because they hurt me. 
even in a severe way? That's why Jesus said, hey, part of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Oh, Beatitudes. Don't just love people you love. That's easy. Love your enemies. Oh, the last words as Jesus hung on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Anne Lamont writes, unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and then expecting and waiting for the rat to die. It'll kill you. Resentment literally means do it again and again and again and again. Feel it again and again and again and again. That was the whole struggle Jesus had with the elite of this day. Yeah, they were fanatical. They are you know, obsessive behavior, but it was for the laws. It was for the rules. It didn't go any deeper. They didn't take, tune in to the relationship aspect of it. And so Jesus would turn to them in Mark 7, 6 and, 7, 6 and say, you know, these people, they honor me with their lips. But their hearts, they are far from me. That leads us to our last one, a third emotion. The one that should cause us to sell everything we possess. And that's the extreme emotions that God has for you and I. His love. Deuteronomy 7, 6, and yes, it was spoken to the people of Israel, but we know as it goes on, it's false to all mankind. But it said, for you are my people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Some of us have difficulty with that, treasured possession. New Testament version, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's the message behind the prodigal son. Father running to you, friends. The pursuit. When gospel writer John wrote and described the disciple, he was describing himself, and he simply said, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't say, oh, the disciple he chose, one of the twelve, or the elite, or the one that was asked to take care of his mother when the others weren't, or the one that had all the views and dreams on eschatology. No, no, the one whom Jesus loved. That was his identity. That needs to be our identity. Tim Keller writes, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and more accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You want extreme? Psalms 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has your transgressions been removed. That's love. There's nothing we can do, nothing more that we can do to make God love us more. Not more worship, not more prayer, not more fasting, not more preaching, nothing. But in the same way, nothing we can do to make God love us any less. The only sin that God can't deal with is utter rejection of him and the Holy Spirit. So don't drift. Discover your true treasure, as Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. A.W. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God? How extreme is your thinking concerning God? Let's pray. Father, thank you again. Your word, your truths, they penetrate heart and soul. We thank you that you are loving, forgiving. We thank you that you are jealous. And you're jealous because you love us. Because you desire for us to be in your presence. And anything else is just wrong. 
Help us to understand the treasure that we have, the capacity to possess and be ours. Bring it back. Remind us time and time again. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.